what a blessing it is for people who have talent to, uh, to use that talent for the Lord. Genesis chapter 49 this morning in your Bibles. Genesis 49, and we want to read at verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the way that we have been blessed in this service today. Just from the songs that have been sung, the prayers that have been prayed, we thank you that for reminding us that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Word of the Father, now and flesh appearing. Thank you for reminding us of his mighty power. We thank you that he is indeed the shining star. We're going to talk about him being the bright light this morning. And we pray that you would just bless us as we study your word together. Speak to the hearts of each person here, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we continue with our study of Israel's final words to his 12 sons, we come to Zebulun. Zebulun, and, and I would just say that, that Jacob is going in an interesting order here as he addresses his sons. He goes by birth order on the first four. He addresses Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah. They were the first four sons born to Jacob. But then he goes to Zebulun. He was the tenth-born son. And then to Issachar, who was his ninth-born son. And I think the only way to think about that order, if you look at it a little closer, Jacob addresses the six sons that Leah bare him. He addresses those six sons together. That seems to be the explanation of why he went from Judah to Zebulun. He addresses Leah's sons, and then he addresses alternately the sons of Billa, Rachel's maid, and Zilpah, Leah's maid. And then he finally he addresses Rachel's two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And so Jacob's sons here are basically grouped by their mothers rather than by a strict birth order. And so the son that we want to think about this morning is Zebulun. In verse 13, he tells Zebulun that he would dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be undesired. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, at the haven of the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. See, keep your place here and turn over, if you will, to the book of Joshua for just a minute. Joshua 
chapter 19. Joshua chapter 19. In the latter chapters of the book of Joshua, we have the account of the division of the land that was given to the various tribes. And so we want to think about Zebulun's inheritance. Look at chapter 19 beginning at verse 10. And the third lot came up for the children of Zebulun, according to their families. And the border of their inheritance was unto Sarid. Now notice verse 11. And their border went up toward the sea. Now there's a word in verse 10 that is important to notice. And it's the word lot. Lot. The third lot came up for the children of Zebulun. If you look this word up, you'll find that it refers to a, a random drawing, if you will. And so the tribe of Zebulun got nothing, if you think about it, from the first random drawing. Um, they got nothing from the second random drawing. They probably feel like many of us have felt all their life where we have gone somewhere and filled out a little ticket and dropped it in a box and waited for the phone call. But somehow, we never got the phone call. Somebody else always got drawn. But then we come to this third random drawing. And in that drawing, the inheritance that would go to the tribe would be toward the sea. Now, this is why the word lot is so important. Joshua is not drawing lots as he wants them drawn. Zebulun is not trying to affect the outcome. You know, whenever you fill one of those tickets out, somebody's always there to say, now, you know what you need to do is sort of fold that end or tear the end off or do something so that when the hand goes down in there, they'll know your ticket. Well, Zebulun, his descendants are not standing there doing that. Joshua... Uh, is drawing this out. And when he does, th this inheritance that is toward the sea goes to Zebulun. It goes to Zebulun. The one who is superintending this drawing, if you will. The one who is superintending this, this third lot in his divine providence, in his Omniscience is God himself because he spoke through his servant Israel. And through his servant Israel, back in Genesis chapter 49, he prophesied that Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. And so when this third lot is drawn, this third lot of the inheritance of the land of Canaan, this lot whose borders will be toward the sea, it goes to Zebulun because 245 years earlier, God said it would. And there hath not failed one word of all his good promise. But these words in verse 11, their border went up toward the sea. They bring into view another part of Israel's prophecy. 
concerning Zebulun. And that is, he shall be for an haven of ships. The western end of the border of Zebulun was the Mediterranean Sea. And the eastern end was the Sea of Galilee. In Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 19, we won't turn to it, but Moses prophesies concerning Zebulun that he shall suck of the abundance of the seas. And Zebulun did that in being a haven for ships that traded on the Mediterranean Sea. Zebulun sucked from the abundance of the seas, from the fishing ships that sailed and worked on the Sea of Galilee. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 49 and verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be undesired. Israel's prophecy concerning Zebulun came to pass exactly, exactly as the Spirit of God gave him. But there's something else that we want to think about in Israel's words concerning his son. Jacob, uh, Israel says that he shall be for an haven of ships. I'd like to call your attention to the word he. He shall be for an haven of ships. Usually, we think of an haven of ships as a place, a place. We think of it as a safe port. We think of it as a safe harbor. We think of a haven as a safe place. We see that in Acts chapter 27 when Paul is um, sailing to Rome. We read there that his ship came to a place which is called the Fair Havens. So a haven in our minds is a place, but Israel says that the haven that he's talking about is not a place. It's a person. He shall be for a haven of ships. And so who is this person? Who is this that is described as a haven of ships? Well, turn over to Matthew chapter 4, if you will. Matthew chapter 4. Lord Jesus, here in Matthew chapter 4, is beginning his earthly ministry. He's about 30 years of age. Luke tells us that. He's been baptized by John. He's been led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And now he is beginning his public ministry. And notice what we read beginning in verse 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. And now notice these next words. Which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. The Lord Jesus begins his ministry on the seacoast. And not just on any seacoast, but on the seacoast that is in the borders of Zebulun. Verse 14. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by 
Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew tells us that what we are reading here is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. We find it in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And the part of the prophecy that we want to uh, particularly focus on is in verse 16. The people which sat in darkness saw great light. So here's the Lord Jesus beginning his public ministry on the seacoast in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea. And notice how Isaiah describes him in this place which is upon the seacoast. He describes the Lord Jesus as great light. Great light. Now let me ask you something. What is absolutely necessary in a place that is a haven of ships? Is it not a great light? Think about our coast, the coast of North Carolina. What is it that helped guide ships through what is known as the graveyard of the Atlantic? Was it not great lights? Great lights that begin on the northern end at, at Curituck, the Curituck Lighthouse, and then comes down to, to Body Island, and then to Cape Hatteras, and then to Ocracoke, and then to Cape Lookout. All along the coast were these great lights to guide ships. You see, a haven of ships needs a great light. So that those who are in darkness on the sea, so that those who are in peril of death can see the light and come to the haven of, of, the, of the coast, of the haven of ships for life and safety. I believe that right here in Matthew 4 is where we find the ultimate identity of the he of Israel's prophecy. Back there in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 13, where Israel said, He shall be for an haven of ships. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he begins his earthly ministry upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun, shall be for an haven of ships because he's the great light. He's the light of the world. The light of the world so that those who sit in darkness... And those who sit in the region and shadow of death, and that's every one of us as we're born into this world, so that those who sit in the region and shadow of death, they need to see that light so that they can come to the light. Come to the light, the hymn writer wrote, to shining for thee. Come to the haven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in these verses in Matthew chapter 4, we're reading not only the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, but I believe the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy. And he shall be for an haven of ships. Now, while we're thinking about Israel's prophecy, I'd like for you to 
turn back to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. Psalm 107, and look at verse 23. They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Zebulun certainly went down to the sea in ships. His border, his western border, was the Mediterranean Sea. His eastern border was the Sea of Galilee. And with Moses' prophecy concerning Zebulun, they shall suck of the abundance of the sea. Zebulun went down to the sea and did business in great waters. And this tribe would have, would have seen in a very direct and firsthand way the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Do you ever get tired of looking at the ocean when you have an opportunity to go? It's just amazing to watch the water just roll in. Sometimes it's very calm. Sometimes the waves look like they're about that tall. And then sometimes the sea is troubled. It's stirred up. But it's one of the great blessings of life to be able to sit and see it in the seas that bordered their inheritance. This tribe, Zebulun, would have seen, they would have known in a very real way the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. But as we look at these verses, we want to see that they not only have an application to Zebulun, but they have an application to us in this hour. That's what we've been trying to do as we have looked at Israel's prophecies to each of his sons. Where We've tried to think about the personal application to us. Because remember, remember, Israel's prophecy there, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 1 what did he say? He said, I'm going to tell you what's going to befall you in the last days. And if we know the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior today, we are Abraham's seed. We're his spiritual seed. And so what he tells, what Israel tells his sons there in Genesis chapter 49 is a prophecy to you and I. We're the ones who are living in the last days. Notice what, again verse 23. They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters. Pastor Kelly in his book on symbols says that a ship in the Bible is a picture of the local church. And the purpose of the local church is to do business in great waters. And the great waters that the local church is to do business in is the great sea of humanity. The great sea of the humanity of this world. In fact, the sea in the Bible is a picture of the lost masses of this world. 
Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 20 says that the wicked are like the troubled sea. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And so the great waters of this world are the waters in which the local church is to do business. And it's in these great waters that we see the works of the Lord. It's in these great waters of humanity that we see his wonders in the deep. Look around you this morning. Here are some of his wonders in the deep. People who have trusted the Lord Jesus as their Savior and he's brought them out of the deep of their sin and rebellion and he's saved their souls and he's established their going and he's put them on the road to heaven. That is seeing the wonders of the Lord in the deep. It's in the deep. It's in these great waters of the sea of humanity that we see the Lord working in the circumstances of the lives of the people of this world. Look at verse 25. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. Again, in Pastor Kelly's book on Bible symbolism, we learn that wind in the Bible is a picture of circumstance. Waves are a picture of unbelief and fear. The winds of circumstance blow upon the sea of life. And they cause the waves of fear and they cause the waves of unbelief to rise in the lives of the people of this world. And we see in verse 26 that these waves mount up to the heaven and they go down again to the depths. Isn't that a description of the circumstances of life? They produce moments of great highs. Oh, we're just on the heights. But the circumstances of life also produce moments of great lows. That's why Isaiah says there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There's only this constant cycle of ups and downs. No stability. Mounting up to the heavens, going down again to the depths. No peace, no stability in, 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 in the lives of those who are adrift on the sea of this world. Have you figured that out yet? Verse 26. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. If you're lost this morning, the Lord is working in the winds of the circumstances of your life to bring you to your wit's end. That word wit means wisdom. The Lord is working to bring you to the end of your wisdom. Because the wisdom of this world, your wisdom, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the wisdom of this world, that's your wisdom and my wisdom, is foolishness with God. Our wisdom is earthly 
sensual, devilish, James tells us. And so the Lord is working to bring you to the end of your wisdom because you will never know God by your wisdom. Never. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.21 that the world by wisdom knew not God. You know how you do know him? Well, the rest of 1 Corinthians 1.21 tells us. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You can't know God by your wisdom. But I tell you how you do know him. You do him, you know him through the, the foolishness of preaching. You know him through his word. Here is the wisdom of God and the genius of God. And the Spirit of God moves upon the waters of the Word to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He does that as the Word of God is preached. That's why churches, even some Bible-believing churches, are getting away from preaching. They're having a praise and worship service or they're having an entertainment service. And by the end of it, there's just no more time for preaching and people go home. And they miss the very reason that people come together to gather around the Word of God. All that your wisdom has done in your life is brought you to reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. That's all your wisdom has done. And so the Lord is working. He's working to bring you to your wisdom's end. And we fight against that, don't we? We always have one more leaf of wisdom that we can turn over. One more little trail of our wisdom that we think that we can go down. One more plan. One more program to try. And you can do all of that that you want to do. But you'll never have peace. You'll never stop reeling to and fro like a drunken man. You'll never have any stability in your life beyond the ups and downs of the everyday circumstances that you face. Until you genuinely come to your wit's end, your wisdom's end. And you cry unto the Lord. Look at verse 28. This is the Lord's purpose. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. What a wonderful place to be. We could spend the rest of the afternoon and into the evening of people here in this room right now who could stand up and tell you about the glorious day that they came to their wit's end. Then, why was it a glorious day? Verse 28, then... They cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. The Lord heard him. Then is when we're at our wit's end. And you're not going to cry unto the Lord. You'll try to make a deal with the Lord. You'll try to make a deal with him. Because you want to keep your wisdom, that's why. But you'll never cry unto the Lord until you're truly at your wit's end. 
and you've given up yourself and you've given up your wisdom and you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and cry unto him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. What a description of salvation. David said, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. What a contrast. If you think about the words of Isaiah 57 and verse 20, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Think of going from a life that God describes as a troubled sea and going to verse 29, he maketh the storm a calm. Think of going from a life that cannot rest, from a life that has no peace, to verse 29, so that the waves thereof are still. That's exactly what happens when we come to our wits' end and we cry unto the Lord. Verse 30, then are they glad because they be quiet. Now notice these next words. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. He bringeth them to their desired haven. Think about that. When we cry unto the Lord, when we come to our wit's end, we trust him and him alone to be our Savior. We're glad and we're quiet. We're quiet. quiet. What a place to be in a world that is raging. We're reading about the one who is prophesied in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 13. He shall be for an haven of ships. This desired haven, the haven of rest, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question this morning is, he your haven? Is he your haven? He can be. Because right now, right where you are, you can come to your wits end. You can lay down your wisdom. And you can cry to the Lord. You can turn to him from your sin. Repent of your sin. That's the first message that the Lord Jesus preached as he began his earthly ministry upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right where you are today. You can come to your wit's end and you can cry to the Lord and he'll save your soul. 
He'll save your soul. He'll make the storm in your life a calm. And he'll bring you unto their desired haven. That's what the hymn writer wrote about, isn't it? My soul in sad exile was out on life's sea. So burdened with sin and distress till I heard a sweet voice saying, make me your choice. And I entered the haven of rest. I yielded myself to his tender embrace and faith taking hold of the word. My fetters fell off and I anchored my soul. The haven of rest is my Lord. I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. I'll sail the wide seas no more. The tempest may sweep or the wild stormy deep. In Jesus, I'm safe evermore. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for Israel's prophecy. And we thank you that it takes us to the one. He shall be a haven for ships. And Father, we thank you that that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who we are entering in the season to celebrate his birth, to celebrate the fact that he came into this world and he came for one reason, to go to the cross of Calvary, to shed his blood there that we might have life. We pray that you would speak to the hearts of any who are lost here today. We pray that in this moment they would surrender their hearts to you, that they would come to their wits' end and stop fighting against you. And Father, if we're saved today, we pray that we would rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that the haven of rest is our Lord. And we pray that we would live in a way in this world that would be a blessing to you. We pray that we would not let the water of this world come into our little ship. We pray that we would be diligent in this big ship. That we would not let the waters of the world and the waters of compromise come into it. And cause it to lose its place here in the world. Lose its purpose here in the world. We just pray these things in Jesus' name.